You're listening to Supply Chain Radio. My name is Matt Gunn, and today we've got a very special guest, Kurt Cavanaugh, founder of Trade Card, which then became GT Nexus, which then became the GT Nexus Commerce Network. <laughs> As part of Infor. Hi, Kurt. Welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So without Kurt, I don't know that any of us would be here or even the podcast would exist. So in a way, it's nice to finally have you on. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird that um, it's the last, uh, my last week here and uh, I'm, I'm finally on the radio with you. So, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Well, better late than never. Um, let's talk a little bit about that though. So you have been in the supply chain industry, the technology industry now for more than the 20 years that TradeCard has existed. But one thing that, and one of the stories that I heard that caught my attention yesterday uh, or recently was um, that you had started out programming video games way back in the day. That's a weird, I don't want to say weird link, but it's the link that I have with you because I started out writing about video games and early on in my career, it was one of the first areas that I had interest in around technology. What was it about that for you that pulled you in? Well, when I was going to graduate school at NYU, it was an MBA, but it was a computer applications MBA. And my undergrad was in biology or bioscience. And I thought I was going to go to medical school. So nothing ever turns out the way you expect it to turn out. But I took a programming class and I got 104% in the class and the professor called me aside and said, you know, you ought to focus on this. <laughs> and um, I just fell in love with programming and then it was something about programming, about the logic and the conversation with the machine and, you know, it was always truth. There was no room for ifs, or no room for kind of ambiguity. Everything is truth in a computer and it, that really just... I just loved it a lot, and so I got a couple of gigs for an educational software company writing games, and they were simple games. They're just, you know, quizzes, the kinds of things that you would do for for kids, for school, and that was back in the early 80s, and that was on the Apple IIe, and then got the idea for uh, a more complicated game called Conquest, which was to teach people the names of the states, the American states. And you could capture a state and you could get the next state next to it. But the only way that you could freeze the state so it couldn't be taken from you is you had to know the capital of the state. And it was a way of educating kids in a way that they could have a game at school. And that was also an Apple IIe game. And it was pretty successful. It was ran all over. So I was getting these little commission checks for for a long, long time. I actually co-wrote it with one of the now trade card employees, Ken Gollum, and he was uh, 16 at the time. <laughs> I needed someone who could do some really deep assembler programming, and he did that for me, and I wrote the rest of the game, and we did it together, and it was pretty amazing. And so I've always, you know, that was just the beginning of my love affair with programming and, and computers. So it was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly it opened up a whole new world for you and led to this new creativity. And I, I find it funny that, you know, you're talking about states and connecting the dots between states, eventually connecting the dots between buyers and suppliers going into the supply chain space. Tell me a little bit how you went to that world. I believe it happened really in the financial side of executing transactions between partners. Yeah. So I really started my career. I had a couple of jobs before, but I really started my career at a company called American Management Systems, which is a big software consulting development company. No longer exists. Got bought by a company called CGI. They're still around. And I started working on a project for them to develop a letter credit system for a couple of banks. 
And we installed that at the first couple of banks. And then I went on a kind of global trip for three years in Australia, England, back to Australia, France, Malaysia, Hong Kong, where we sold that software. And by the time we were done, 30 of the top 50 global trading banks were using that software for managing letters of credit for international trade. And I grew up to run the uh, the corporate banking practice, which was where that lived inside of AMS. And we were optimizing the financial side of letter credit transactions. And we also did foreign exchange and collections and all the things around that. But it was very much focused on how to make the banks more efficient. And that was all through the 90s. And in the late 90s, we were approached by a, a guy from the World Trade Center Association, the Association of Those Big Buildings, and said, I have this idea for um, how to make uh, it more efficient. And it was the seed of trade card. And it was one of those aha moments in my career where we had been thinking about it, not wrong, but we were thinking about it, optimizing it for the banks. And when we had this conversation with this guy, Guy Tizzoli was his name, it was thinking about it to optimize the underlying transaction and then bringing the finance in on top of it. And we weren't, we never thought about that because we didn't sell to anybody except for the banks. And so very quickly, we designed a system, did prototypes and, you know, fast forward, I left AMS and started the company Trade Card with a bunch of my colleague friends from AMS and actually one of my uh, clients, Guy Ray Herm, and the people that work for him, Vanessa and Ken and Ted. And so there's a group of a couple dozen of us who raised venture capital from Warburg Pincus, and that was the start of Trade Card. And we were coming at global trade from with a finance background, but thinking, how do we actually think about this differently? How do we break it apart? And what it was, was if you think about the underlying transaction, you have a purchase order, you have an invoice, you have all those pieces of data, and you make that really granular and you expose that. And then you layer the money movement and the guarantee and all that stuff on top of it. You can start to optimize the supply chain and then layer finance on it. And it was to totally revolutionize the way trade was being done. I imagine going from the lens of simply helping the banks to really optimizing the process for all parties, that really changed a lot of perspective on what the supply chain really was for you and how these companies interacted. How did it all kind of grow from that initial seed? When did you start to look at technologies like cloud and network technologies to power this type of transaction? Well, when we started in 99, there was no such thing as cloud computing. I mean, the, the term didn't exist. The, the concept was out there, and we were called an application service provider. And what we realized is if we were going to do this successful, we needed to connect together all the parties, all the buyers, all the sellers, all the freight forwarders, all the banks. We had to connect them together into – we didn't call it a network, but we said we need to have one space for them to work is really kind of how we thought about it. And that was our initial architecture. It turned out to be the exact right architecture because fast forward, they now call that cloud because we hosted the application coincident with the data. They were hosted together. And none of the parties that were part of the network, the buyers, the sellers, et cetera, actually had to have local software. They did it all over the internet. Now, in 1999, the internet was pretty young. It was a little bit of a crazy place. It was a wild west then. 
remember Amazon started in 97. So this was just the very beginning. And I went to all my banker friends and said, Hey, you got to join in on this. This is going to be a really cool thing. And they're like, dude, you can't move money over the internet. That's not going <laughs> to, that's just no good. And uh, so it was one of those things where the banks just didn't want to play and was like, oh, how are we going to make this happen? And so we had to find somebody that would move the money. And we ended up using Thomas Cook to move the money. They were the first ones that would move the money for us. And that was with the Bureau de Changes around the world. You know, and you see them in all the airport, Thomas Cook, you know, travel. And they move money for their foreign exchange. So we got them to move the money. And we couldn't get the banks to do guarantees, which you need as part of a letter of credit. So we actually created a synthetic letter of credit by using an insurance contract with a company called Cofas. And Cofas used to be the French Exim Bank, but then it spun out as a private entity. And it's the largest grantor of export credit in the world at the time. And so we created this synthetic letter of credit, which acted just like a letter of credit, but it was done with insurance. So we were really one of the first cloud companies accidentally. We were one of the first fintechs because we were creating this new financial technology and neither of those terms existed back then, mm -hmm. but we were doing it. So we cobbled this all together and we started selling and we boiled the ocean. We talked to everybody to try to get it going. And it was one of those things you never know. And a friend of mine at Comerica Bank said, well, we just lost this customer to HSBC. We'll bring you in and we'll get it back with you doing it. And I said, okay, fine. Well, so we met with Wolverine Worldwide and they make the Hush Puppies and Merrill Boots. And they said, yeah, we'll try it. They were willing to be, you know, technology leading edge kind of thing. And so we got them up and running. They had 14 factories where they managed their shoes. And we, we got those factories up and running. It was slow because we didn't have people in Asia. And, but what it made us realize is, unlike AMS, working with the banks, where you just work with one bank, we were going to have to work with all the parties. And so the big aha was, uh, at that time, was that we needed to open up offices around the world. Because if we're going to have a buyer like Wolverine with 14 factories and they were in China and Vietnam, how are we going to service those factories? How are we going to answer those questions? And so that was the seed for us kind of going global back then. And so we opened an office in Hong Kong and in Taiwan and then eventually in Shenzhen, China. And, um, you know, we grew this network of offices. And from Wolverine, our next customer was Nike. The CFO of Wolverine said he saved a 20 cents a pair with every pair of shoes that he imported using trade card. And that's pretty phenomenal. And when you're a big company like Nike, you hear that, you're like, wow, okay. And so Nike took a gamble on us, and they were our second customer. They didn't give us all their business, but they gave us like a billion dollars worth of business, which is, which is pretty cool. Not too bad. Yeah. Not too bad for a startup. And we got them up and running, and you know they had 400 factories, again, mostly in Asia. And so that factory base began to grow. And then what happened is we realized that if we wanted to really do this quickly, we needed to stay in the apparel and footwear industry because we had those factories already up and running. And it's kind of like, you know, if you think to a credit card, if you start a new credit card, it's only good if places accept it. Okay, you got to be able to take it to the restaurants. Well, we were getting those restaurants, we were getting those factories up and running on the platform. They were happy to use TradeCard because it saved them money too. And so we 
you know, had Nike up and running, and then all of a sudden we started selling it to others, Phyllis Van Heusen, and, you know, and then it just exploded. It just took off from that. And we kind of ping-ponged around the planet, if you will, opening offices, you know, went from 100 factories to 500 factories to 10,000 factories, and, you know, it just grew like crazy as we got more and more buyers up and running and we kind of ran the table in, in apparel footwear. Now, not every company uses it, but a significant portion of apparel and footwear that's imported into the U S is imported on our platform. It's amazing. And it's, it seems hearing it now that maybe it was a quick and steady growth, but there must've been points early on where you're like, what are we doing? This was just a small technology that suddenly caught fire a little bit is this the right next step? Did you ever kind of question the growth pattern for you for where you were going with the technology or was it really self-explanatory? Was it easy to make those decisions and get the factories on and really expand this network so rapidly? There was days where we woke up and said, are we going to make payroll to tomorrow? There was a lot of days like that, particularly in the beginning when we were trying to get it up and running. Once we got Nike up and running, it was easier, but you know, we over those periods, you got to remember, we started in '99. We went through 9/11. It was a crazy time. Every you know, crazy time to do business. We went through the SARS crisis, which people don't remember. But when the SARS uh, epidemic started, it was in Hong Kong and China, and all of a sudden, the idea of going to Hong Kong and China to get factories up and running was like, how are we going to do this? And starting to think about how do you manage all that? And then, you know, we went through the 08 crash, the blackout in New York and Sandy, all those things, because we're running this physical network in the sense we got a data center and then we had two data centers and, and people all over the world, all this kind of these global events all make it harder for you. But we worked our way through every one of them. It was mostly good days, but there was a lot of a lot of angst, some bad days, but you know, it consistently grew and it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't a straight line at all. Um, it would go up and we'd add four new buyers. Like we got Polo Ralph Lauren, you know, at the same time we got another big buyer and then we had to figure out how do we get all these factories up and running? How do we get them on the thing? And then there'd be a pause. And so then we'd have too many people to do the factories. And it, so it was kind of this punctuated equilibrium, if you will, it would go up and down and up and down. But the good news is it was always, as our investors at Warburg Pincus said, as long as the line is always going up and to the right, it's a good thing. So the slope changed a little bit here and there, but it was always going up and to the right. Absolutely. I mean, the rise of this too, from the late 90s to today, supply chain has become so much more in the forefront as well. Being there early on and starting to connect these different companies, trading partners, suppliers, everyone else out there, and then seeing kind of that whole thing validated must be pretty amazing when you reflect on it. But at the same time, not everyone's there yet. Not everyone has digitized these processes in the supply chain. There's always work to do. Where are we going next with all of this? Well, I, there's still a lot of work to do. And, and I'm, always, I'm always amazed when I hear of companies that are still doing things old-fashioned way with paper, letters of credit. And there's still a ton of companies out there that are like that. But if you look at our path 
you know, we started with the financial supply chain with payments and guarantees, and then we added a set of tools for doing factory management, which allowed companies to do the packing and the scanning and generate those UCC 128 labels, which are the, you know, the barcodes. And then when we started going into the physical supply chain is when we bought and merged in GT Nexus so that you could do visibility. Because our stuff at TradeCard was take the orders, get the orders packed, pay for them, and then ship them. But once they shipped, we kind of had a black hole. Where is this? What GT Nexus brought to the table is once they were shipped, we had visibility to where they were in the world and your ability to book your transportation and optimize your transportation and, and then be able to get the visibility as it came all the way back into your DCs or your warehouses as it got there. And so we started building out all these products to bring this all together and bring the GT Nexus and the trade card stuff so that we can go into a customer and say, hey, we can bring this cradle to grave from when you initiate a purchase order all the way through to when it's delivered to your warehouse and even to your store and even out to the customer. And so automating all that. And I think that there's our products, and there's other companies that are doing this stuff too. We're not the only ones that are doing it. We were just early movers and, and it was pretty successful. But I don't know that there's big gaps in that technology. I think as I look forward and start to think about what's going to happen, I, I think we're moving into a different world. And I think that there's a few things that are going to happen. One is we're moving into this world of much shorter lead times and customization and personalization. And I think... That world of let's do everything over in a really cheap factory in the cheapest place we can find, like Bangladesh or Ethiopia. You know, it was in China, then it moved to India, then it moved to Bangladesh, and then it moved to Ethiopia, chasing all that, you know, the cheap sewing and the cheap manufacturing. I think those days are, are coming to an end. And I think what people are focused on now is I don't want to buy a container's worth of stuff, ship it to my warehouse, and then hope I can sell it those days are slowing down. And I think now we're into this more, they want to be able to do a more personalized experience for the customer, do more customization, order less, but sell all of it at a better price instead of selling most of it at 20% off and a lot of it at half off and then throwing some of it away, selling all of it at close to full price. That's a very different world. And the tools that we build are still relevant, but I think there's a set of changes that are going to take place. I don't think we're going to see everything on the water for 45 days in containers. I think we're going to see micro factories that are going to develop where people build factories in the U.S., not because politicians put trade barriers up, but they'll build micro factories because getting that ability to customize and have quick delivery makes more sense. It certainly makes sense because you're also getting a premium for that because the customer is getting exactly what they want, right? Not what the other guy has and a yeah. million other people have. I can customize. And so, you know, there's a bunch of startups that are going on right now. There's a couple of them that came out of XRC here in New York, one called Nimbly that does using this Shimaseki knitting machines, custom sweaters, where they can knit you a sweater in, in 30 minutes and deliver it to you the next day. And you can have exactly what you want. And there's another company called Zeal that's doing up in upstate New York, got a grant from the state to try to create jobs up there, short-run performance sportswear apparel. And then you go just a little bit further away into, say, Central America. There's companies that are – there's a performance apparel brand called Wear It to Heart where they do fast yoga wear that has custom printed on it, and that's done in El Salvador. 
And so it's, you know, instead of, again, instead of these 90-day lead times, do something in five days or 10 days. And so we're going to see really close stuff here for custom, stuff that's a little bit further away for semi-custom. And then you have the factories that are really efficient, like there's a factory in Asia called Talaparel. And they make the Brooks Brothers shirt. They're on our platform. They make the Brooks Brothers No Iron shirt, which is like one of the best shirts in the world. But they also can do custom shirts for people. And they can do that manufacturing in four days in Malaysia or Vietnam or China and then airship it to you so you can get it in a week. So you can get a custom shirt in a week from overseas. So I think we're going to see this kind of blending together of, yes, you're always going to have some cheap stuff manufactured in Bangladesh. But these other layers of customization and personalization and more local manufacturing, they're going to change the supply chain. I also think that the consumer is changing a little bit. Sure. And, you know, this whole idea of like cheap and throw it away, you know, us baby boomers were supposed to save the world. You know, I don't think we did, actually. I think we kind of wrecked it a little. But the millennials are a lot more conscious of that kind of stuff. And so the sustainability efforts that go in to great companies like Patagonia that, you know, that will repair your clothes for you. And, you know, so there's going to be that as well. And it's, so I look at this as a, just a really exciting time with lots of change and lots of opportunities. And then above or around all this is AI. Mm-hmm. I think that that's data is everything. And we're moving into this new world where everything is going to be AI driven. And I think that's another really cool thing that's going to happen and change the world a lot. Absolutely. And it's amazing because we talk about personalization or customization of products. But within that, you're also changing services, you're changing experiences, you're surrounding the customer with something that's very relevant to them. And it's a totally different way of finding the goods and services that you like. To me, it's amazing that, you know, when you look back, the supply chain has a piece of all of that, just orienting the right way and finding the right technology to support that next evolution with products that we buy that's so amazing. As we get better at the use of data, machine learning, and AI, how much more are companies going to be able to predict the future, whether it's things that are happening in their supply chain or the things that are the patterns of what the customers actually want at the end of the day. Well, it's going to be in pretty much all aspects of of the supply chain and the consumer experience. In the supply chain, there's simple things. And, you know, we're doing some of those things now using the big data to do predictive ETAs. You know, when is this actually going to get there? You know, it's predictive ETAs that it's huge when you're on a boat. And if you can predict within a few hours when you're going to get it in your DC, that's pretty amazing, especially with how people have tight windows for when they can deliver stuff into their warehouse, you know, so that's a pretty cool thing. So there's that kind of stuff that's happening in the supply chain. And that's great. But I think there's real magic around really understanding what the consumer wants. And you think about companies like Stitch Fix, which are sending boxes of clothes to people using AI to learn what the consumer likes so they can get better and better at predicting what stuff in the box the consumer is going to take. And when you start to think about AI that way, you start to think about, well, if I can predict what the consumer is going to take, 
I can ship a lot less because I can ship just what I know they're going to buy. And I'm not going to have the markdowns and I'm going to have better margins. And so that is going to just change the way the volume of stuff that's coming through the supply chain because I'm going to be more accurate. I'm going to be less, you know, spray it and pray. It's going to be more, okay, I'm going to use AI to be very targeted. And it, it also you can start to do things like where you can get the signals from the marketplace quicker. So I've got a collection out there that is, you know, got these 10 pieces in it, these, you know, 14 different colors, whatever, whatever the collection is and taking that early data very quickly and using AI to be able to predict of that collection, what are the five pieces in the three colors that really matter? And then going right back to the factory as quick as you can and saying, okay, let's focus the collection on these pieces, these colors, and really slimming it down. And that, again, it affects the supply chain because of the volume that's going through. And the supply chain needs to be reactive. You need to be doing it more just in time. It may mean more air shipments and less things on the boat, but I'm going to get more of the right stuff to the right place. And so those kind of tools around AI and and being able to predict what the consumer wants is is huge. And we see it in housewares, things like that, where we can get the trends very easily. And my merchant friends don't like me to say this, but, you know, there may come a day where the computer is better than the merchant at predicting what the consumer wants. You know, because the computer can look at hundreds of variables. A good merchant who's making selections about what goes into a collection, whether it's homewares or whether it's, you know, clothing or whatever, can only look at 10 or 12 variables at the most. That's all their head is capable of kind of putting it all together. You know, so the computer can really think about this. And, you know, wrapped around this, all this is this boom in computer power that's taking place right now. The chips are just getting so strong and they can process so much more so fast and we can store so much data so cheaply that all that stuff comes together to, you know, create an opportunity to really change things. Talking to you now, uh, even though you're you're retiring, and I'm using some air quote quotes unquote, here, quote right? Yep. I get a sense that you're still very passionate about the things that you do, about technology, about where the world is going. Can you give any hints as to what's in the future for you? So I'm really, really hoping that I can take at least a couple months vacation. I've been working <laughs> hard for the last 20 years, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine not going back in. And the change is taking place right now, the disruption that's taking place with AI, with these powerful chips that are going to create all this capacity, is going to create a whole set of opportunities that are not out there, you know, not being fully realized now. So I want to at least make one more run at doing that stuff. So where that'll be, I'm not sure. You know, I've been asked to do some technical advisory for companies, you know, like work with the CEOs and kind of do some coaching around how should they be thinking about technology? Because I think one of the challenges that I see often is you have these great CEOs of these companies, but they just don't know enough about technology to understand how should I be thinking about it? How should that dovetail into my strategy? Are my technology people making the right decisions? So I've been asked to do a little bit of that. And then one of the things that I love to do more than anything else is, as I mentioned, XRC, which is the incubator that's part of Parsons Schools of Design. I do some advisory over there. And for, for clarity, I also do a little investment as well. But I love working with these young CEOs, you know, because they come 
to the problem. You know, they're 25, 30 years old, and they don't really understand the business that well. And mm-hmm. some of them don't understand the business at all. <laughs> but it's a great thing because they're coming at the problems totally different. You know, think a stitch fix. I'm going to send boxes of clothing to people and see what they buy. Who would have thought of that? Okay. It certainly wouldn't have been somebody who was running JCPenney. No, that's, you know, let's, how do we make the stores look prettier? Right. Which coupon do I send out this week? Exactly. (laughs) That's a very different question to be asking. And so when I work with these young CEOs, the freshness of their ideas is just fantastic. Second is they're immersed in the technology. You know, I'm a digital immigrant. I was born and raised before the technology took over our lives. Now, you know, these guys are digital natives. They were, by the time they went to high school, they had iPhones. And that's a very different world that they grew up in. They can't imagine a world where, you know, they write anything down. It's all on a computer. It's all on a, on a phone. And so the commentation of the native knowledge they have about technology, the naivete they have about how real things work, allows them to come at these problems from a very different point of view. And it's, it's fascinating for me because it's like, ah, oh, I, I slap myself in the head all the time because that's a great idea. Now, the way you're doing it is stupid because <laughs> you have no idea the back end, how are we going to manufacture this stuff or what are we going to do with this, you know, other problems. Worry about that later. Yeah, yeah worry about that <laughs> later. Well, you can't. You got to do it all together. And, you know, and that's where I can help them. And, and that's the fun part of it is you can bring that level of experience to it. But it's when I'm working with these young CEOs, I'm seeing the world through a fresh young set of eyes over and over again with a different point of view. And that's a lot of fun. So I think the advisory stuff and the working with the young CEOs are stuff that I'm definitely going to do in the short term. And, you know, there's always one more company, who knows, (laughs) but it's got to be a super idea. And it's got to be something that I can get really passionate about because none of this stuff is, you know, a nine to five job. It's, it's got to be something that you love and you're going to go after with a lot of passion. Because a big part of your life. Kurt, thank you so much for joining. Any other thoughts as we close out this episode and close out your time here? Well, uh, you know, Nexus? I can only say that the, the real secret to GT Nexus was the team. We have a great team of people here and they're going to continue on. So I have great hope for GT Nexus here inside of Infor. And I think it's going to be fantastic because the, you know, I'm leaving and, you know, but the bulk of the team is is staying here and I think it's going to be a, a really good thing. And I'm thankful to have worked with such an amazing group of really smart people. And all I can tell people is the technology change is coming faster and faster. And if you're not paying attention, you know, you're either surfing the wave or you're getting smashed by the wave. And being up on the surfboard and on the wave is a lot more fun than being rolled around underneath in the <laughs> in the wash, if you will. So Sounds like someone speaking from experience. <laughs> yes, both physically and met- metaphorically. So you definitely want to stay on top of the technology and stay involved because, you know, it's changing faster than you can imagine. But uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Matt. Excellent. Thank you, Kurt. This has been an episode of Supply Chain Radio. Thank you for listening. Be sure to find us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. 